You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated once again, if you'll turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I didn't have specific kids, kids notes today, so they can use the adult notes because the length of them isn't overwhelming. So I just went ahead and allowed us to use the same notes. Revelation chapter 1, which we've already read through this morning, but we will come back um, and read through it again. For those that weren't with us last week, we began our uh, study on the book of Revelation um, by giving a uh, lengthy introduction uh, to some of the things that make Revelation difficult to understand, um, but then also looking at the overall theme and purpose and message of of what the book is trying to convey and the hope that is attached to that meaning. Our summary sentence from last week was, Revelation is the glorious reveal of how God controls all of human history to accomplish his goal of the sacrificial lamb, triumphing over all of his enemies in order to secure the eternal joy of his bride. And so ultimately there's this cosmic struggle taking place in the book of Revelation. Uh, God and Satan um, and both of their forces, but we were very clear last week, hopefully, that we're not talking about a essence of dualism where we've got God and Satan on the same equal platform duking it out, that God is in control of everything, including Satan, who is his creation. And so while there's a cosmic struggle, struggle playing out, it's ultimately all designed for God's glory and his purposes. And so Satan is given uh, authority and the ability to do things, but all of that falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, just like we see in the book of Job, that uh, Satan is required to come and get permission for anything that he really does. And, and God gives that permission as it fits with his purposes. Um, and so the book of Revelation is that cosmic struggle, God controlling everything for a specific purpose, uh, that Jesus as the sacrificial lamb will, will ultimately uh, overthrow all of his enemies. He will rescue the church, which is his bride, and there will be an existence between Jesus and the church for all eternity that will obviously be a very joyful, eternal experience. I gave you a um, summary of the book of Revelation last week, and these are available in our notes on the Google Drive um, if you'd like to access these, but just as a means of catching up anybody that wasn't here last week, there is an unseen spiritual war operating behind the scenes of history in which the church is engaged in a cosmic conflict occurring between God and his Christ and Satan and his forces, both demonic and human. This war, both the events and the outcome, are controlled by God and echo the prophecy of Genesis 3.15, whereby God is creating enmity between Satan's seed and his. The great dragon assaults the church through persecution, false teaching, trials, and temptations, and will appear victorious initially. But the certainty of Christ's triumph in the end is meant to warn and fortify the church so that she endures suffering and remains pure from the enticements of this world. And I added there um, for this week, it's like a stained glass window rather than a crystal ball. Um, It describes history as a whole more than just the finish line. And so um, we're not looking into a crystal ball and seeing all of these events play out chronologically necessarily. What we're seeing is kind of a stained glass picture that gives us some clarity, but some things remain clouded a bit. Um, But we see a beautiful picture of God's plans uh, for human history. Um, And then our application from last week, we said, stay up to date, 
be prepared to work outside of Sundays, and keep your eyes on Jesus. Those three things will help you as we journey through the book of Revelation. One, if you weren't here last week, I can't stress to you enough to listen to the podcast from last week. There's, there's information that I didn't cover right here. The fact that we're approaching the book of Revelation from an amillennial perspective, from an idealistic perspective, and not from some of the other perspectives. Um, if you weren't here last week, you may not be familiar with what those terms even mean and what alternatives are out there. And so I would encourage you to listen to the podcast so that you stay up to date with where we're at. Um, I'm also going to be posting opportunities for you to further our study outside of Sundays by giving you some things that you can do, you can read, you can watch that will help enhance some things that maybe we don't cover on a Sunday. And then ultimately, this book is about Jesus, and so we're going to try to keep our attention on Jesus. And so we will talk far more about Jesus than we do the Antichrist or the Beast or the Harlot or anybody else in the book of Revelation. We will try to keep our attention and focus on Jesus. All right, our summary sentence for today, um, and I did condense this for our kids so they can write this down if they would like. Revelation is meant to bring great blessing to the church in the midst of persecution, deception, and temptation as we focus our eyes on Jesus who removes our greatest fears. Revelation is meant to bring great blessing to the church in the midst of persecution, deception, and temptation as we focus our eyes on Jesus who removes our greatest fears. In the coming weeks, we're going to get into um, the letters that were written to specific churches in the book of Revelation. And we're going to find that these topics of persecution, deception, and temptation are running themes to all of these churches. Um, That some of them were being subjected to persecution. Persecution that would uh, potentially discourage the saints, cause the saints to want to walk away from the faith out of fear for their lives. And so there's going to be encouragement and um, hope communicated to these churches that they should endure persecution. There's also going to be discussions about false teachings that have infiltrated the church, and uh, this deception from these false teachers would lead people astray into false doctrines, and um, the, the, the letters are meant to draw the church back out of that deception. And then there's temptation, uh, the offerings of this world that would um, cause the church to get its eyes off of Jesus and instead focus on the material offerings that this world uh, extends. And so um, all three of those things are hit in the letters to the individual churches. And so Revelation is meant to bring great blessing to the church while these three things are going on uh, by causing us to focus our eyes on Jesus. And when our eyes are focused on Jesus and we're resisting persecution and temptation and deception, our greatest fears can be removed. For our kids, if we fear Jesus, we have nothing to fear. All right, so that's our summary sentence from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. As you're still copying that down, maybe let me give you some some introductory notes uh, from today. Uh, We know that John writes um, from an exiled position. So John is enduring persecution uh, for his own faith, and he's been exiled to the island of Patmos where he he receives this vision from God and where um, God communicates these things that are coming um, both in the present and in the near future and maybe in the far distant future. It's the only book with direct blessing attached to it for the reading, listening, and obeying of it. Now, while Scripture is told as a whole that there's great blessings from reading and studying Scripture and there's great blessings from obeying God's laws and God's Word, this book specifically is the only one that has it attached to it specifically. There is great blessing attached to the reading, listening, and obeying of it. 
Um, and so that's why I shared earlier today during our prayer request time that if that's the case, if there's great blessing in, in, the, in store for us as a church over the next year as we study this, great blessing in store for us, then we should expect the enemy who is very real, and we're going to see his, his, his realness in the book of Revelation, that the enemy would seek to attack this study here at this church. That if there's great blessing in store for the church and for the people that make up this local church, then we should expect that there would be attacks that would hinder our ability to hear and understand this book. Um, that would mean increase in sickness, uh, increase in, in responsibilities that maybe would deter our ability to be here on a Sunday. I shared with you already that that's, that's been the case for me that I've had the two busiest weeks of school that I've had probably all year, and it's been the two weeks that we're preparing to study for Revelation. So we should expect that if there's blessings in the reading and the hearing and the understanding of this book, that Satan would seek to, with his forces, would seek to try to derail our study of this book. Um, it's a book that is more about Jesus than the future. Uh, we talked about some of this last week, but um, we can agree to disagree about portions of this book, and we can both still find great benefit from it. Um, because while we may disagree about how the future plays out, um, it's, it's not a point for us to separate fellowship over. Right? There's, there's first-tier doctrines that are related to the gospel that we would say, this makes you a Christian, and to deviate from these doctrines would make you not a Christian. There's other doctrines, second-tier doctrines, that would say, hey, you are part of our denomination, or, um, you know, we don't claim a denomination here at Sovereign Hope, but, but you are, uh, these, these doctrines would, would allow you to feel comfortable worshiping here, um, whereas you may, if you believe differently about those second-tier doctrines, you may would want to worship somewhere else just from a practical standpoint, baptism being a good example. Um, if you, if you were to believe real strongly in infant baptism, um, you may not want to worship with us. You, you, you could still be a Christian, but we don't, infant, uh, we don't baptize infants here. And so if you were to have a child, we wouldn't baptize your child here. And so for the sake of uh, practical application of what you believe about Scripture, another church would maybe suit your family better. Uh, but we can still, we can still fellowship you're still a Christian, uh, we can still rejoice over that. Then there's third-tier doctrines like eschatology, uh, our views on the millennium and the rapture, that you don't really even have to separate from this church um, if we disagree about those things because they aren't points of emphasis within this church. And so we can agree to disagree about some of the things of Revelation and still find great benefit together in this study. There's a lot of uh, imminency to this book, meaning that, that there's uh, an urgency to it, that things are, are imminent. Uh, according to John, that things are soon to pass and soon to come. Seven times we are told things must happen quickly or they must take place soon. And I think that's consistent with what the other parts of Scripture say. You know, we don't always think about ourselves living in the end times, but Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Author of Hebrews sees us within this uh, context of overall human history being within the last days. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the same John who, who most likely wrote the book of Revelation, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
This, this idea that we are in the last days, we are in the last hour, uh, that being inaugurated with Jesus' first coming. And so Jesus comes, and he has kind of kick-started what we view as the end times. And so while there may be still things, many things even, that may happen uh, into the future, we, we consider ourselves in the last days now. Um, and John certainly presents that here at the beginning of this book. Um, some other kind of random things. Um, in all of Scripture, 25% of the references to angels are found in this book. They are mentioned 67 times in this book. So expect us to talk more about angels than we ever have before um, because 25% of their references are found in this book. Um, another point that makes this book difficult, there's, 200 and, uh, or there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them. So over half the verses in Revelation have roots in the Old Testament, meaning they use similar language as another passage in the Old Testament, or they may be directly quoting from the Old Testament, or they just simply find their roots in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. If we go back to Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, All right, in reference to David's descendants, ultimately looking ahead towards Christ who would come from the line of David. Um, let me give you another example. Um, Revelation 1.7, and this, this is just from the, the passages that we've looked at today, and I'm actually going to skip over one because we're going to come back to it. Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. That's Revelation 1.7. Uh, if we go back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Almost every other verse that we're going to encounter in Revelation has some type of ties or roots to the Old Testament, which means we're going to reference the Old Testament a lot to really unlock and, and understand the book of Revelation. We're going to have to grasp the Old Testament um, it's significant, one, because we need to know that in studying Revelation, we've got to look at the Old Testament. But two, I mean, it really communicates the unity of Scripture, right? Like too oftentimes, especially as kids, I think, we think Old Testament, old, outdated, um, old news, New Testament, relevant, um, the updated version. And yet what we see is that they're, they're, they're one story of God that's been communicated to us, right? One book that has a, a, a continuity to it in the themes and the messages and the plans and the promises. And Revelation, the last book, the last inspired words that we get from God, it's heavily focused in the Old Testament, which means the Old Testament's not done with, it's not old or outdated, it's still very relevant as we look into the future. The book is symbolic, um, and that certainly makes it difficult. And right off the bat, we're going to see some symbolism in the book of Revelation. So let's go back to Revelation 1. Um, we're going to be looking at letters to seven churches that are in Asia. 
And we also have a reference to seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Seven is a number that is symbolic in the book of Revelation. Um, And what we mean by that is that as we work through the book of Revelation, we can't take everything in here literally because it's not meant to be taken literally, right? We're going to see descriptions of Jesus that are horrifying if you try to draw pictures of it, right? Like as I was trying to find a graphic for our sermon series to put on the bulletin and stuff, um, I mean, I, I came across a really creepy lamb that just had tons of eyes on its face and, and a neck that, you know, had been slain. And, but that's the picture. As, as John is describing what he's seeing, he's describing Jesus in this way. The problem is that we know Jesus is in a glorified body, and the Bible's very clear in Philippians that he took on the form of a servant, became man, and will always be a human being, right? He doesn't morph into a lamb with multiple eyes, right? He's, he's Jesus. He looks like a human being. He's got a glorified body. He's the firstborn of resurrection. He's what we look forward to for our own body. So unless anybody wants to sign up to look like a horrific, weird animal, We don't want to take that passage literally, right? So there's a lot of symbolism, and seven is a number, a lot of numbers that are symbolic in the book of Revelation. If it's being repeated regularly, it's most likely meant to be a symbolic number versus a literal number. I think there's seven literal churches that that John writes to, but the fact that he chooses seven and the way that it's even written as he he concludes his message to each church, what does he say? He talks about the churches as a whole hearing the message to that individual church. So the idea of seven carries this idea of completion, right? Like this idea of completion that, that it covers all of its bases. So when he talks about seven churches, the idea here is that this is for all churches at all times, that this message is relevant for all the churches, all right? So if we take that understanding of seven, and seven is going to mean completeness throughout the book of Revelation, we can also apply it to the other confusing part of Revelation 1 through 8 when it talks about the seven spirits. Um, 99% of the, the commentaries that I looked at, meaning all but one, not really 99.7, 99%, if, you know, percentage-wise, but all of them but one say that the seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we don't have to overcomplicate this and, and try to figure out, well, it says seven spirits. It's a completeness to God's spirit. It's a completeness to God's spirit. Um, the only other one that, that differed from that um, said that it was angels that, that, sent, that God sends forth. I think it's heavily supported that it's the Holy Spirit because it finds itself in a triune-type greeting, right? We've got references to God the Father, God the Son. You would expect God the Holy Spirit to be present in that introduction as well. Um, because the number seven is symbolic, we don't have to get hung up on seven actual spirits. And in fact, um, if we look at Isaiah just so you don't think I'm off my rocker thinking that seven means one. Isaiah chapter 11, verse two. Uh, We'll start in verse one, talking about the prophecy of Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Listen to verse two. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, right? Seven different references to how the Holy Spirit functions in this passage, okay? So seven spirits reference in Revelation. There, there's at least some background in the Old Testament where we can say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit has been referenced before with that number, not as seven different spirits, but as the Spirit of God functioning in a variety of different ways. 
Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Uh, for whoever is despised... Well, that's the wrong one. Uh, oh, it's actually the whole passage. Um, I'm not going to take the time to read the whole passage. But if you look at Zechariah chapter 4, specifically verses 4 through 10, I believe. It talks about the reference to the lampstand and the seven representations in that lampstand, and then it's tied to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so seven, symbolic number. Right off the bat, we see it being used symbolically with the churches and with a reference to the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, and let's look at some reasons why John is given the information that he's given, right? John is being given a revelation, specifically a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. All right, so if we, if we look at that sentence right there, um, we can see that the revelation is about Jesus. It comes from God who showed it to Jesus with the goal of it coming to Jesus' servants, right? That's all Christians, all saints, not just the elite. Everyone's supposed to get this revelation. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So we have God who has the revelation, gives it to Jesus, who then uses an angel to extend it to uh, John, who is then meant to pass it on to all saints. All right, why does John have this information? Why do we need this information? In your notes, first of all, it's given to us to reveal things. It is given to reveal. I mean, that's very clear from the beginning here. It's not meant to confuse. It's not meant to terrify. It's not meant to divide. In fact, the Greek word for revelation means to reveal, to unveil, to uncover, or to disclose. Um, And the wordage that's used here also ties it to the idea of it being a symbolic revelation. So God wants to reveal things, and he's going to choose the method of symbolism to do so. As we talked some last week, this revelation that's being given to John will reveal the invisible forces and the invincible plan that makes sense of the visible events and movements we are experiencing. John is going to reveal to us the invisible things behind the scenes, and we're going to see this invincible plan that God has, and it's going to make sense of the things that we see on an everyday basis and the movements that we're experiencing. Let me relate to this way. Uh, You may remember like back in like Walmart and some of the stores in the mall where they sell posters Back in the late 90s, there was that big craze where you'd walk by and you'd see a poster that was made up of like a bunch of small little images of like the same image. And you try to look at it, and you could see like all the detail that was what was put into that poster. And then you'd have the person next to you that says, hey, can you see the image that's in that poster? And for some of us, it took longer than others to, to cross our eyes to be able to see that image that was kind of contained in that mess of design. Um, you'd have things like dolphins jumping in a sunset, and, but it would be like a bunch of pink and blue and random shapes and stuff. And some people never saw it, right? Like you, you probably all had those friends that were like, I just can't see the dolphins and the sunset. That's what revelation is for us, right? Like we see like a messy, 
uh, a messy life before us with a lot of details and a lot of events. And sometimes we wonder, how does this fit together? And, and what is God doing? And Revelation lets us step back and lets us cross our eyes a little bit so that we can see the plan that's in the midst of all that mumbo jumbo stuff, right? So, so John says, I wanna, I wanna give this to you because God's given it to me and it's going to reveal to you some things that we've been operating behind the scenes that you haven't been aware of. And it's gonna help us see this picture, this plan that God has in store. It reveals to us the way things truly are when they seem to be the opposite, right? Like we're gonna find out that the church at Smyrna thinks that they're a rich church, but God's gonna tell them that they're very poor. We're gonna find that some claim to be Christians but John's letter is going to identify them as belonging to Satan. The church at Sardis, to everybody else, looks to be very alive, but Jesus says, you're dead. Laodicea thinks that it's rich, or sorry, Smyrna thinks that it's rich, but it's, um, I think I've got it backwards. They think they're poor, but they're rich. Laodicea thinks it's, it's rich, but it's actually poor. The beast seems to be invincible as it kills Christians, but we find that victory is actually being accomplished through death. So all the symbolism that's found in Revelation, it's meant to be the accurate picture of what things really are. They, they look different in real life. Here's what's really operating behind the scenes. Meaning we shouldn't expect anybody that potentially falls into the realm of a beast or an antichrist or a false prophet to look as evil and horrendous as the book of Revelation paints that person or paints that individual or paints that entity. Right? The book of Revelation symbolically is going to show this is what that thing really is. It looks different. Here's what it really is. Okay? So it's going to help us to, to see and it's going to reveal things that we can't see with our normal eyes. Um, there's expectation on the reader to understand and to respond to this book. We talked about this some last week. The message is clear enough for us to do something with it, and we should expect that, meaning we should come every Sunday. I should come every week as I study expecting to understand this book because God expects us to get it and to respond to it. I was challenged this week in even thinking through that. The, the, original, the original book, it's given in the context of the early church who has no commentaries, no study resources, no charts, Right? Like they're just supposed to read this, this letter, this, this document within their local church. And the expectation is, is as people hear it being read, they understand the message and they respond to it and do something with it. To me, that means that we shouldn't try to overcomplicate this. We shouldn't try to overcomplicate this book. In fact, one commentator said, if, if you read the book of Revelation at the age of five, you will understand it better at the age of five than you ever will the rest of your life. Because as you continue to get older, the book gets muddied up because you come at it with preconceived notions about millennial views and ways to view the book, and, and you start complicating it. Um, if you read it early without any of the, that knowledge, you may understand it better than you ever would the rest of your life. The early church understood it. They weren't confused they, they, they weren't misunderstanding it. They understood it and they were able to respond to it and do something with it. What we're gonna see is that the overall story of God's plan is revealed and it should lead us to praise the Lord. It should lead us to cheer for the saints. It should lead us to detest the beast and it should lead us to long for victory.
kind of the flow of the book, that, that it does result in worship. It does result in us um, worshiping God for who he is, and we should cheer for the saints as we see the pictures of the saints persevering and even in death finding victory. We should see the, the evil of the beast and what Satan wants to do to the church, and, and that should obviously lead us away from sin, right? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to lead us to repentance, and so when we yield ourselves to sin, we are acting out the, the agenda of the beast, right? Like we are, we are deterring from what God wants us to be and do, and we are living out that agenda. We should hate the beast more. We should hate sin more as we work through the book of Revelation, and we should obviously long for victory. Long for victory. I want to come back to, to what we just said here, that it shouldn't be an overcomplicated book, that we should be able to grasp and understand this. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 1. And I want to just draw out some simple things that are very clear without us really having to get into much of our notes today. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Right off the bat, we can see that Jesus gave this to John. He did it through an angel, right? It's meant for all of us. There's, there's an urgency to what's going to be told to us in this book. Um, it, it means that it's relevant to people that first heard it. It's still relevant to us today. Uh, no, verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what, it is, what is written in it, for the time is near. We can see very clearly without the use of commentaries and study tools that, um, that there's a, a blessing that comes from reading this, that there's, there's good content contained in this book that is going to be helpful for us as Christians, um, that we can simply hear it and respond because it says, who keeps what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace and peace, that sounds very familiar to some of the other letters in the, in the New Testament, right? This isn't, this isn't deviating too much from the norm. Um, we understand Jesus to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so that description, who is and who was and who is to come, should ring true and familiar to us. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, we said that can be complicated, and you might need some help with understanding that. Uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. We see Jesus in his preeminence here, that, um, that he is uh, a witness to God the Father, but he's also one who has conquered death, and he rules over all kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And verse six is the gospel, right? Verse six is the gospel that it's Jesus in his love for us. And I love how John is very clear that he mentions the love for us prior to the freeing of us, right? Jesus doesn't love us after he saves us. Jesus was motivated by love for us prior to saving us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves us. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. But he doesn't just stop there, right? Like he has a, he has a, a future in store for us. He's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7, behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
clear to us Jesus is coming back. We may not know when and we may not fully know in what capacity, but he's coming in such a way that it'll be very visible, visible to all people. And, and somebody asked, you know, what, how can we all see him if we're relegated to this side of the world and, and not to the other side? I don't know that every single eye will be able to see him. I think the idea here is that it's not going to be invisible. This is, this is one of the strong points to me to, to, um, to not hold to that rapture view that Jesus comes in secret, right? The rapture view hangs on this idea that Jesus comes in secret and takes his church away, and yet here it's very visible. It's, it's, very, it's very visible and very clear that Jesus comes, and there, there's, there's sorrow over it. Some repentance-type sorrow that's, that's, um, that's shown, but even maybe some, uh, some sorrow over the fact that there's anger towards Jesus because there's not a desire to be submissive to him. Verse eight, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So there's some clear things that can be pulled from this without really even having to pull out the study tools. Um, and so I wanna be careful that we don't overcomplicate the book as we study it. Number two, John is given this information not just to reveal, but to reveal for a specific person, purpose. It is given to bless us. It is given to bless us. There's blessing in the one who reads it aloud and who hears it. Blessing comes from both reading and responding to the revelation that is going to be given here. You may ask, well, what type of blessing are we talking about, right? Like, what should I expect in going through this study? What type of blessing should I expect to be coming my way? I think the core message of the book of Revelation provides comfort, encouragement, and when necessary, correction that God wants us to receive in order to make us overcomers or conquerors. Let me explain that. The message of Revelation is going to give us the encouragement and the conviction that we need to be overcomers. Book of Revelation talks about us being overcomers or conquerors, people that make it to the end. Sometimes in my prayers, I pray that, that God will, through my teaching, whether it's here, whether it's in chapel at Trinity, I'll pray that God will bring about the encouragement and the conviction necessary for him to work what he wants to in our life. There's, there's two roles to how the, the word functions in our life. I think it brings encouragement, keep on persevering, but it also brings conviction to one who has wandered, steers him back on the path so that he continues to move down that role of, or that path of being an overcomer. And so the message of Revelation, the message of Revelation is meant to help us be an overcomer. And so the blessing here is that the content of Revelation, I think God uses it to keep you saved to the end. Right? We've talked about the security of the believer. Here at Sovereign Hope, we believe that if you're saved, you're saved. You don't lose your salvation. But I've also shared with you on multiple times that I think God uses warnings in Scripture to make sure that you stay saved. Christians don't, don't wander away and abandon the faith. People that do that claimed Christ but never really had Christ. They were never really indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us to the day of redemption, the Bible says. The book of Revelation is a tool that God uses to keep us sealed, to keep us not wandering from the faith. And so that's the blessing that's gonna come from this book is that God is going to use this to once again and further fortify our faith so that believers in this room make it to the end. And perhaps people that aren't believers in this room become believers as a result of it. That's the blessing that I think comes from this book. It's meant to solidify a hope that leads to holy living. We've already said this morning, persecution 
comes from the beast, false teaching will come from the prophet, um, a seduction of materialism will come from the harlot. These are, these are the three things that would deter us from our faith, that would, that would seek to strip us from our faith. Persecution, right? Like things get tough and we decide, you know, following Jesus isn't worth this. We see that in the sower and the seed, that, that it becomes hard and difficult and so we don't make it to the end. Persecution. The beast brings persecution on the church in the book of Revelation. But we also see false teaching oftentimes will, will sidetrack a, a, a believer or someone claiming to be a believer. False teaching can infiltrate the church, and um, the, the false prophet brings about false teaching in the book of Revelation. But then the harlot is a picture of uh, materialism and um, some of the offerings of the culture that would, would sway us from our faith as well. Um, desires of the flesh that would, it would cause us to say no to Jesus and yes to sin. These are the things that would attack us. Revelation is meant to protect us from those things. But as a, as a book that, that kind of reeks of fantasy, for those of you that like fantasy stories, Lord of the Rings and, and, and that type of adventure series, you read this book and it creates a longing in you to eat from the tree of life one day, right? To, 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 be, in God, to be in God's presence and to be enjoying that environment of Eden that we talked about in Genesis it creates a longing to eat from the tree of life, to escape the second death that we're warned about in the book of Revelation, and to share in Christ's reign. We're going to see this glimpse of, of Jesus' kingdom coming to earth and, and uh, eternity being ushered in and, and the church being gathered as this great temple and it's made up of priests and, and we're going to rule and reign with Jesus forever. It creates a longing for that. As we study it, it should create a longing to participate in the end of Revelation, all right? So it's given to bless. But number three, it's also given to create urgency. It's given to create urgency. The emphasis on the now just as much as it is on the future. As we work through the book of Revelation, obviously, I think some things have not happened yet, right? Jesus hasn't come back for his church yet. So while there was an urgency to the first readers of Revelation 2,000 years ago, it was still very relevant, and the urgency was very real for them because persecution was coming. Temptation was coming. False teaching was coming. And they needed this message as much as we need it now, whether Jesus comes back in 10 years or whether Jesus comes back in 2,000 more years. It's urgent for us because we face at least some, if not all three of those things, persecution, temptation, um, and false teaching. Absolutely urgent. The emphasis is on the now just as much as it is on the future. Be pure now, overcome now, obey Jesus now. We see that admonition to be obedient in Revelation chapter 1. It says, um, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Unless we think that that ethical call to obedience is only in the beginning of Revelation, if you skip ahead to Revelation chapter 22, the very end, very end of Revelation chapter uh, 22, verse 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. 
But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. There's this this heavy encouragement at the end of this book that we'll get to, to be obedient, to respond to this urgency, this message that Jesus is coming back and it should mandate to us today to live holy, to be holy, and to obey, obey Jesus now. To go along with that idea of urgency, I just read to you verse 10, it says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. That's contrary to what Daniel was told, right? If you go back in the Old Testament, one of those passages that's kind of rooted in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse four, as God is giving Daniel visions of the end times, and I'm sure we'll incorporate some of Daniel into our Revelation study, but it says in verse four, You, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So while Daniel was told some things, the urgency wasn't attached to it as much as in the book of Revelation. John's told, don't seal this up. Talk about it, share it, spread it, because the time is near. So that's some of the reasons for why John is given this information and why it's relevant to us today. Let's talk a little bit about the revelation of Jesus Christ here in verses 1 through 8, and we'll, uh, we'll wrap up today with, with three points about Christ, because I believe that before we see anything else in the book of Revelation, that God himself, through John, wants us to see a clear view of Jesus. And what we've read this morning in verses 1 through 8, it gives us a grand picture of Jesus and his greatness. It also gives us a glorious picture of the gospel We know from Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus, he's the author and the finisher of our faith, that we're to keep our eyes focused on him. And so before we even get into the book of Revelation, we want a clear view of Jesus. So in our notes, um, in Christ, our fears are removed. In Christ, our fears are removed. In our discussion um, this morning, I asked you to kind of talk about some of your preconceived ideas based on previous studies in Revelation, based on your visits to Judgment Journey and Tribulation Trail. What are some of the scary things in the book of Revelation that the church could potentially have reason to fear? And we talked about reasons that we find hope in this passage. What were some of the the, the scary, fearful things that you guys discussed that are in the book of Revelation? What are some of the, the, the big things, Brian? Exactly, exactly right. In the book of Revelation, Satan gets a lot more attention than maybe in any other book, right? We see glimpses of Satan. We see Satan back in Genesis 3. We see kind of shadows of Satan and what Satan's wanting to do as we work through the Old Testament. Jesus obviously confronts Satan in the, or Satan and Jesus confront each other in the wilderness with the temptation. Um, we're, we're warned about Satan at different points in some of the letters of the New Testament that he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour to be, to be cautious and aware of his devices. 
But he gets a lot of attention in the book of Revelation, and we get to see um, what one commentator described as a commentary on Ephesians 6 and what it means to engage in spiritual warfare. Why the armor of Ephesians 6 is so important because he really is a lion and he really does have a number of forces and he really does have things working themselves out behind the scenes in history. And so we get this picture of Satan. And so absolutely right, there's, there's a, a, a potential fear of what Satan brings to the table against the church. What were some other things that, that you discussed as far as fearful things that we find in the book of Revelation against the church? Any other thoughts on on that? Yep, there's, there's just a lot of crazy events that take place. There's famine, there's war, there's earthquakes, there's, uh, there's plagues that were talked about. There's, there's many judgments of God upon the earth that, that kind of come out in the book of Revelation. Um, you've got, you've got uh, you know, different potential figures in the book of Revelation. I remember going to some of these uh, dramatic displays and and walking away feeling very fearful of the, the Antichrist and the deception that he could bring and, and the mark of the beast and, uh, and then at times being paranoid that I might accidentally get the mark of the beast because there was that big push that tattoos maybe are tied to the mark of the beast and, and then any type of uh, financial uh, help with credit cards and chips and stuff that maybe that ties into the mark of the beast. I mean, just, just kind of a, a lot of speculation and a lot of concern uh, that comes out of the book of Revelation potentially. And I want, I want you to understand that I think the most scariest, most concerning, and most alarming figure in the book of Revelation, like if we were to try to rank them, is Jesus. The picture that we get of Jesus, the, the description that we just, and, and this is where we're not five anymore. And so we read through verses one through eight, and we're like, yeah, it's talking about Jesus. But if you read verses one through eight, and try to read it like a five-year-old, you walk away saying, whatever else is in the book of Revelation is in submission to this figure, Jesus, right? He's, he's eternal. He has all the power. He even has authority and power over those who have pierced him. He has authority and power over all the kings, all the rulers, if you read it as a five-year-old, you would read it and say, I need to be on the good side of Jesus because if I'm on the good side of Jesus, nothing else that I'm going to read about matters. And the concerning part, again, because we read it now as Christians, is that most of, most of us at some point, had we read it, we would have come to it as an unbeliever. And, and that is where it's a scary, a scary notion, that there's a living God a creator of the universe. There is nothing that an antichrist, there is nothing that Satan, there is no earthquake, there is no famine, there is nothing. There are no plagues, there are no locust people that, that are symbolic in the book. Of, there, there is nothing that you can read about in the book of Revelation that should cause as much concern as dying and standing before the creator of the universe and not being prepared for that visit. Jesus simultaneously is the scariest and the safest figure in the book of Revelation. He's scary. He's horrific. He causes us to mourn and to hide and to run if we're not, if we're not with him. If we haven't joined his team, if we haven't become a saint, 
as Revelation 1 through 8 says, if we haven't been forgiven of our sins, washed in his blood, freed from our sins, we're not on his side. And when he comes back with the clouds and everybody can see him and the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, it's not going to be a good thing for the unbeliever. And yet for the believer, you couldn't be in a safer environment, no matter what revelation throws your way, than to be in Christ. To be in Christ, no earthquake, no famine, no antichrist, no beast, no dragon, none of those things can touch you because they're all in submission to him. In Christ, our fears are all removed. He's a sacrificing king. That's, what, that's, what, that's part of the glory of who he is. He's a, he's a king who sacrifices himself for his people. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne <coughs> and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace have been extended to us. We certainly don't deserve the relationship that we can enjoy with Jesus, but he extends that to us because he loves us. A wrathful God now responds to us in love. And what's, what rings true to me, again, kind of thinking through what else is gonna come in Revelation, is that we've been set free from our greatest enemies. Before we ever read about any attacks that are going to come towards the church, we've been set free from our greatest enemies, right? We've been set free from sin, John tells us. He has freed us from our sins, not by our good works, but by his blood. We've been freed from death. That idea of the firstborn of the dead. Jesus wasn't the firstborn, first person to come back from the dead, right? We, we know of other resurrection stories before Jesus' resurrection, What makes his unique is that Jesus is the only person to ever die, come back to life, and never die again, right? Lazarus died again. The widow's son died again. Different kind of resurrection that Jesus is the first fruit of. And so we look to this, and this is important because as Christians, some of us are going to die potentially for our faith. Some of our, our fellow brothers and sisters will die today on the other side of the world for their faith. Now, some of us on this side of the world will fall prey to temptation and will fall prey to false teaching today. So the threats are are just as real over here, just different. But what we see here is that we've been set free from our greatest enemies, that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the consequences of our sin. In fact, we can live victoriously. We've been set free from that bondage because we have a sacrificing king. His death and resurrection make hope possible. Colossians 1, 15 through 18 is a passage that talks about um, that relationship of Jesus to us. Colossians 1, 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace 
by the blood of his cross. You can't help but think John had this passage in mind when he's writing Revelation 1. Or at least Jesus had it in mind as he told John what to write. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise raise us up by his power. We look forward to that resurrection. That's why you see Christian after Christian in the book of Revelation willing to die. They're willing to die. And you've got souls in heaven saying, how much longer, how much longer? But there's this, this lack of fear of death. They don't fear death anymore because they believe that the one who is the firstborn of the resurrection will also extend that same resurrection to all of his children. In Christ, all of our fears are removed because at the end of the day, if we fear him, there's nothing left to fear. Number two, in Christ, our life is secure. In Christ, our life is secure. He is an eternal king. He is an eternal king. We see this idea um, in the, uh, of him being a who is and uh, who was and who is to come and the Alpha and the Omega in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. In Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, these are passages I think that we read um, when we were in Genesis when we talked about um, God being greater than the false gods um, that Jacob could have given himself to. In Isaiah 44, 6 through 7, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God places forth that challenge. Is there anybody out there like me? Is there any being that possesses the abilities that I have? And the answer is is unequivocally no, right? He is the first. He is the last. He is the alpha. He is the omega. Our future is secure, which makes our life secure. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about things that have happened in our past. We don't have to worry about our present. We don't have to worry about things that are to come in the future that we haven't even thought of yet because Christ is the is and the was and the is to come. A lot of commentators draw on the fact that the present part is emphasized here because if we're writing it, we would probably write it grammatically to say who was and who is and who is to come, thinking past, present, and future. John starts by saying he's the God of the is. He's the God of the present. Why? Let's don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus is with us right now, even though we talk a lot about Jesus coming back, right? Let's don't make our kids think that, that, that we look forward to a day when we're reunited with Jesus. That's just from a bodily standpoint, right? We're in Christ. Jesus is with us. The present is the emphasis here, not the past, not the future. The fact that Jesus is with the church today, and that's needed because if we go through persecution, we certainly need him on our side. As the Alpha and the Omega, he defines the beginning, the end, and everything in between. It's, it's interesting, too, that the Father and the Son both possess these qualities. Um, Revelation 1, 4, we've obviously read several times this morning, but Hebrews 13, 8. Uh, in, in Revelation, it's tied more to God the Father, 
But in Hebrews 13, 8, uh, we know about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and then if you look at Revelation 1, 8, where it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and then you skip down to Revelation 1, 17, uh, I'm talking about Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. So it's not that God the Father is these things and Jesus isn't. They're used interchangeably in multiple different places. Revelation 21.6 and Revelation 22.13, both God the Father and Jesus seen in the same light. He's an eternal king, but he's also a coming king. While he's with us today, let's not lose sight of the fact that there is a great hope for what will be different when he does return. He is a coming king, a king that will come visibly Psalm 104.3 talks about uh, the, the clouds being the chariots of God. Daniel 7 and Matthew 24 and Zechariah 12 all use language similar to this return of Jesus. It's a visible coming when Jesus returns. It won't be done in secret. There won't be a question as to whether he did or did not come. It will be made evident to all. All right, and then number three, in Christ, our purpose is defined. So our fears are removed. Salvation, the gospel, saves us from our sins, saves us from a fear of death. Um, All of the fears are removed because we're fearing Jesus. Our life is secure. Whatever we're going through right now, whatever we go through the rest of this year and into the future, it's secure that Jesus, same yesterday, today, and forever, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything in between, right? Um, our purpose is defined, though. He's an authoritative king. John talks here about the glory and the dominion belonging to him forever. What makes him so good is that he's not only ruling and reigning over the people that love him, he rules and reigns over those that hate him, right? The ones that pierced him. Um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't defer his authority to their king and say, okay, Satan, you got these people, I've got mine. No, like he, he has all authority. Um, those that pierce him, there's no threats, no dragons, no beasts, no harlots, nothing that threatens his power. He's an authoritative king, which has implications for us that we have a responsibility to obey him. We obey him now so that we're not found to be a traitor when he returns. When he divides the sheep from the goats, we want to be on the right side. And the way that we're on the right side is by submitting to him today. But he's also a missional king. I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that he's not just a Jewish king today. As my family doesn't um, directly descend from Abraham. Um, I'm very thankful that, that Jesus is a missional king. That he's building a kingdom that's made up of all nations. You say, well, why would you say that? Um, well, because in... Revelation chapter 1 and in verse 5, verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. All right, Old Testament root time. We go back to Exodus 19. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told, um, wait, am I in the right place? Nope. 
Exodus 19, not 14. Exodus 19, verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Um, Still not in the right place. Verse 5. And it's highlighted already. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. He's talking to Israel here, right? Like Israel's at the foot of the mountain. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Like God is calling Abraham's descendants to be a kingdom of priests. And then what do we find here in the book of Revelation? We find this declaration that the church made up of all nations is that kingdom and the fulfillment of that promise, right? It's, it's not just the nation of Israel anymore, right? Like we see that the Gentiles have been grafted in. That's what gets revealed on this grand stage in the New Testament. And we see the fulfillment that, hey, we get to be included in this. If we're not of Jewish descent, it's okay. 1 Peter 2.5 talks about us too being that kingdom of priests, This is good news for us because we're talking about Jesus being possibly the scariest figure in the book of Revelation. And if he's just a Jewish Messiah, then we're left on the outside looking in. But the fact that he has redeemed both Jew and Gentile and he's creating a kingdom of priests is good news to the majority of us in here who don't descend from the Jewish nation. That we can be included in this great gospel of being set free from our sins and washed in his blood. The application for us this morning is that Revelation is made up of two teams. We're going to see two teams throughout the rest of this book, leaving us with a decision. Who will we serve? Joshua presents that same call um, at the end of his life. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's not just a matter of, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? There's still this ongoing appeal that if you are truly a Christian, then you need to be following King Jesus that's being revealed in the book of Revelation. That we should be resistant to the sin and the temptation that comes our way. And to give in to sin is to play for the other team. Right? We talk about baptism being kind of a press conference that says, I don't play for myself. I don't play for the, play for the world. I play for Jesus now. When we give in to sin, especially ongoing patterns of sin, Right, Because I'm not, I'm not saying that we ever get to the point where we're perfect and we don't sin ever. But to continue to give in to patterns of sin is to, is, to, is to basically make yourself look like you're on the other team. And that should be very concerning as we look through, look through the book of Revelation because it's real clear who is and who isn't for Jesus. And the ones that are for Jesus endure persecution and continually are fighting against their sins. And they make it very clear when Jesus comes back, hey, we've been with you for a while now. We've been with you for a while now. And so so I want to make it real clear because I said that John wants us to see Jesus before we see anything else in this book, that this serves as a reminder. Jesus is our king, and he demands our, our following and our submission to him. And at the end of the day, if we really see Jesus for who he is, it's really not of a, it's not a question as to why we would, why we would want to do that, right? Like, like it's very clear why we would want to follow him, that, that it shouldn't really be a decision at the end of the day, that he offers the best life possible. He comes to offer freedom and the abundant life, and that's made available to us. And if we say yes now, we're eating of the tree of the life in the end. We're escaping second death in the end. 
and we're ruling and reigning in a temple and in a kingdom that is beyond anything we can comprehend. And the best that John can give us is symbols and pictures of what that's going to look like. For our family worship this week, number one, what temptation or temptations is each family member in our family facing right now? Um, So I'd like for us as a family, um, persecution maybe not uh, ringing true for us as a church right now or as an individual, maybe, uh, but maybe probably not. Uh, But again, attacks come in in other ways, persecution, temptation, uh, false teaching. But I think this would be a great place for our, for our, our moms and our dads to lead our families and our kids in discussion about what temptations are we facing right now as kids and as, as family members within our family. And then number two, what can we personally do to help, perv- or help ourselves overcome those temptations? Obviously, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we overcome any temptation. But Scripture is very clear that a way of escape has been made and that we have a personal responsibility to do things to fight against sin and to protect ourselves from sin. So I'd like um, for our moms and our dads, especially for families with kids, to, to have some discussion about temptations that our kids are facing right now and what they can personally do to help overcome those temptations. Again, if you weren't here last week, I can't encourage you enough to listen to last week's podcast. For those that you know aren't here today, encourage them to listen today because it'll be easy to fall behind and not know exactly what's going on um, if you don't stay up to date with where we're at uh, in the book of Revelation. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we, we come to you today and, and we praise you and thank you for the blessings that are going to come to us from this study. Not material blessings. Um, God, we're not expecting job promotions and um, raises and uh, cars and vacations. and We're not expecting those things to, to roll our direction. Instead, Father, we're, we're anxiously expecting that you will solidify our faith even more than it is right now. So that as, in, as temptations increase, as false prophets and teachers rise up that would seek to deceive us, and God, as potential persecution comes the way of the church in, in this United States. Father, I pray that this study would go a long way in preparing us for things that we have no idea that are coming. That our faith would be strengthened. That we would be overcomers, conquerors. Even if it means to the death. God, we're thankful that that Jesus is the reigning king. And God, I, I thank you that for me, you created a desire much like you did in the heart of Rahab to where I looked around and said, there's nowhere to run. There's only one place to run to, that I'm a sinner and that I deserve punishment. And my only hope is to find grace and peace from the one that I've wronged. And God, I thank you for my salvation. And I thank you that that you caused me to run to you rather than run away from you. So that when you come back, I'm clinging to you rather than trying to hide. God, I pray that that would be true for everyone in this room. If we have anybody here that is yet to submit themselves to King Jesus, God, I pray that you would call them to salvation through this book. That the urgency of this book would draw them out of the darkness and into the light. God, I pray that our kids, as they're coming to a, a better understanding of the gospel, and, and many have yet to do this, God, that our, our exposure to Revelation would lead to us leading well in our homes, that we would want to call our kids to see Jesus for who he is and to see the grace and the peace and the freedom and forgiveness that's being extended. God, help us to give an accurate picture of Jesus to our children. 
that would cause them to run to him and never run away from him the rest of their life. God, I pray that you would encourage us as a church, help us to understand and comprehend something that you fully expect us to. Help us to be obedient as we come to a better understanding of what you're calling us to in this book. Help us to fight sin faithfully this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.